Welcome to Navigating Your Child's Education, a podcast for parents, grandparents, and anyone raising or influencing kids from preschool to high school. I'm your host, Laura. We have with us today, Dr. Kevin Brown. Dr. Brown earned a Doctor of Philosophy in English from the University of Mississippi, a Master of Arts in English from East Tennessee State University, and a Bachelor of Arts in English from Milligan College. He also holds a Master of Library and Information Science degree, along with a Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. He taught and wrote at Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee for 19 years, and he now teaches high school English at Innsworth School in Nashville, Tennessee. He has authored three books of poetry, a memoir, a book of scholarship, and has also had several critical articles published. Dr. Brown, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, you recently wrote an op-ed in the Tennessean about the removal of certain books from school curriculum in Tennessee. Can you tell us a bit about these recent events? Sure. There's two different ones that have been getting a lot of press. Um, One is McMinn County, which is down uh, around Chattanooga, a little outside of it. Um, And they're getting the most press because their choice was to remove Art Spiegelman's graphic novel, Mouse, from the classroom. Um, It's been taught there for years. It's a graphic novel about the Holocaust. Uh, He portrays the Jews as mice, uh, thus the title Mouse. Um, the Germans are cats, the Americans are dogs, things like that. So it's uh, a very kid-friendly type of book um, where kids can learn about the Holocaust without having to see the pictures I certainly grew up seeing um, of, you know, naked bodies all stacked together in a grave. So um, teachers have been using this book ever since it came out in the early 90s. Um, When I was down in Stratford Academy in Macon, Georgia, we actually used the book as a summer reading. So uh, I've taught a graphic novel class that has it, so I'm fairly familiar with it. So that was uh, uh, the board made a decision 10 to nothing to remove that from the classroom. Um, And then the other one is outside of Nashville here, Williamson County. Um, the one book that's been getting the most press is Sharon Creech's, um, I believe it's called Walking Two Moons or Walk Two Moons. Um, and that's a Native American story about a woman who's, or a girl who's dealing with the absence of her mother. And they go to try to find her mother and she's telling herself stories to help deal with her mother's loss. Um, exploring the Native American tradition of storytelling as uh, helping to shape the universe, helping to shape one's uh, worldview. Um, So those are the two big ones that I wanted to write about and talk about, Um, especially Mouse, because in a county um, right beside Chattanooga as well, uh, there's the uh, Holocaust Museum that they set up, Um, not the big one in D.C., but um, it was a group of middle school students who were studying the Holocaust, and they were having trouble understanding how uh, the idea of six million people. So they decided to collect six million paper clips um, to represent this. Um, They ended up with over 30 million paper clips. Um, Someone donated a rail car from Germany um, so they could house them there. Um, It's still right beside the middle school. Kids see it every day when they walk in. Um, And so I wanted to contrast those counties. Uh, Both of them are small rural Tennessee counties, but one, pursues this project because they want to see people who are different than them and they want to learn. And the other seems to be taking the other approach these days. Um, And it's almost exactly a generation apart. Um, That's what I'm really curious about is what would those kids from Whitwell, Tennessee, who studied the Holocaust, now that they're grown, what would they say about all of this? 
That's a great question. And um, I understand that, you know, I think I've caught national headlines that are covering this story, and it certainly seems to have stirred up quite a bit of dialogue and disagreement and tension. And uh, but the reality is this is not a new phenomenon, right? It's not and it's not localized to a particular area. I was fascinated to find that the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom keeps a running list of books that have been banned, challenged, or removed from libraries. Titles that we all are familiar with, like The Great Gatsby, It's Kill a Mockingbird, and The Grapes of Wrath. And um, these books and the challenges of these books span not only our country, but they seem to go throughout the world. And they date back as early as you know the 1920s and 30s when we probably keep, started keeping records of this. My question for you is, why do you think that parents advocate for the removal of books from school libraries and curriculum. What do you think is driving actions like this? Uh, I'm glad you brought up the history because we can take it even further back. Um, uh, Chaucer at times had to struggle with being um, banned. Um, Shakespeare in his day, um, the um, Puritans of his day closed down the theaters because it was immoral. Um, what I think is interesting is if you go through the history, things we now would push as classics and we would never take Shakespeare out. Those were in their time controversial. Um, and so I think one thing that drives it, and, and I want to be very careful here because there are kind of the, the people with very particular agendas who I think do this and people who are well-meaning. Um, and so I want to differentiate between those two um, because I think there is simply the fear of the new or the fear of ideas that are scary in some way. Um, in fact, um, I emailed some of my elected representatives about this case because the Tennessee legislature is now debating, should they have a system in place to talk about the, the, what's going on and should they talk about how to, how to deal with controversial books? And one of my points to them was, schools already have these mechanisms usually in place. I'm not sure the legislature needs to set up something new. But when I wrote one of them, uh, one of the representatives, she wrote back and her critique of these books was not really concern about the youth. It was concern about ideas. Um, she said that they were pushing a particular political agenda. And so I think there are some people who will push for those reasons. And so I want to set those in their own category over here. Um, but then I think, I mean, these these topics are touchy subjects. Um, they're subjects that are hard to talk about. They're they're awkward to talk about in some cases. Um, so if we have a book coming out about the Holocaust, I mean, that's hard to deal with. Um, I remember in middle school we watched films and there were people crying in the class. Um, and this was back in the 80s. We certainly didn't have school counselors. There were no warnings. It was just you're going to watch this movie. And I mean, girls, typically almost all girls getting up and leaving the room. Um, and so I think schools do so much of a better job now of preparing students for these things. But I think some parents say, you know, they want to have those discussions with their kids um, that they're motivated by, you know, I don't want my child to see X. I don't want them to hear this word. Um, and I, I understand that uh, to a certain extent, um, certainly. Um, but then I also wonder how many parents are spending time at home talking about the Holocaust. Um, it usually just doesn't come up naturally. 
So I think there has to be some sort of balance here in between. Um, and so I, I, I understand why a parent would do it. Um, and I'm trying to think, I think when I was in school, there were certain days where you had to get some sort of parental approval. Um, something like, um, in, I went to a public school, but in the biology class, when they're talking about biology of sex, um, and it was not even sex education, it was just literally the biology. This is how things work. And I remember there was one student whose parents just would not allow her to be in that conversation. Um, so yes, it's been going on since I was in school. It's been going on since the 1400s, um, and it's going to continue going on. Um, I think what's changed now a lot is there is this distrust, um, especially of teachers. Um, this idea that it's one of the few fields where people think they're experts as well. Um, and again, I want to be really careful here. Um, but um, like, I would never go up to a firefighter who's putting out the fire at my house and say, do you really want to use that hose? I think this hose would work better. Um, but yet, um, people, everybody thinks they know how to teach, and they think anybody can walk into a classroom and teach, and those of us who do it know it's quite difficult. Um, and so what I try to do as a teacher is um, I want to set up that balance. I want to set up the students for it. If I'm going to teach something controversial, I'm going to say, here's why we're doing it. Here's what we hope you get out of it. Um, here are words you should know are coming. Um, I'm teaching a class right now where we're reading A Raisin in the Sun, African-American drama from middle part of the century. Um, the N-word pops up in there several times. Um, I want students to know it's coming. And I talk about how we're not going to use that word in our class because I think it's one of the most hurtful words in the English language. Here's why it's in the, in the curriculum. Here's why I think we need to use this book. But here's why we're not going to use that word. And I found in almost all of my settings, if I can set things up and talk about them, then students, then parents are going to know, oh, this is why we're using this book and not some other book. Um, that, that's one question I always have in the McMinn County. I watched part of the board meeting and people were like, there are other books that could be doing this. And as a teacher, I would just want to say, OK, what are those books? Because if there are books that are as good, um, you know, Mouse was so good, even as a graphic novel in 91, they made a special Pulitzer Prize for it. So is there a book that's that good that does this in the way that it does it? If there is, I'd, I'd love to have that discussion. Um, too often I get frustrated when people say that, but don't offer alternatives. Um, so if I, I think if there's just more conversation between the teachers and the parents and the students, instead of just all of a sudden it gets to people showing up at a board meeting and then there's a vote and it's just over. Um, there's no real conversation. And I think that comes from just this mistrust on both sides quite often, because I'll also say, I hear teachers complain about parents as well. So parents complain about teachers and vice versa. And that, that needs to be solved in some important way. Something you said reminded me of a quote from your op-ed. You quoted parents in Williamson County who moved to take a particular book out of the elementary school curriculum. They said, we want to continue to let our children have their innocence. And we think that such topics need to be taught at home. You referenced that. So there does seem to be this piece about parents being able to control or at least moderate 
how their children learn about really difficult topics, right? Like genocide, slavery, or even things like sexual identity. As parents, how do you think that we can step wisely into these topics when information is proliferated? I mean, that's a great question because, I mean, we're just talking about books we assign in English classes. Um, what's going on on the Internet? Um, you know, I mean, in my day, it was what we heard at school. And, you know, people would find, you know, particular books in other parents' houses and they'd pick those up. And I mean, yeah, it's just so easy for kids to find out almost anything they want to find out now. Um, filters can be gotten around. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can do this. So I think if I'm thinking about a conversation between teachers and students, who I saw somebody, or teachers and parents earlier, I'm thinking about teachers and parents and students, like conversations here. Because I think some of the reasons kids go to those lengths is because they're not getting those conversations anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so they have a question and it might be an embarrassing question and they don't want to ask a teacher. They don't want to ask a parent. Sometimes they don't even want to ask their friends because they don't want to look dumb or, you know, the, the old you know stereotype of they're not as experienced as other people in certain ways. So I, I think what we need to figure out is how we can engage those students with these very, very important questions in very meaningful ways, very productive ways, very safe ways. Um, and I'll throw in age appropriate as well, um, without trying to say we don't want them to ever know about these things because they're going to find out about those things. And so if we can have those conversations, then it's going to help everybody. And I think for me, the key word in all of this is community. Um, kind of that distrust I was talking about earlier, What one thing I see is there's kind of the individual approach I don't want my child to read this. I don't want my child to do this. But sometimes there's the good of the community as well as the good of the individual. And this is always the debate in America. Um, it's all through American literature. It's all through American history. And right now in America, we seem to be very individualistic. Um, you know, I want what's good for me. I want what's good for my family. Sometimes what's good is what's good for the community. Um, and so if that student can be involved in that honest, helpful conversation, they can bring points of view to that conversation. So somebody can say, I think this book is great for this reason. And somebody else can say, I was bothered by this book's portrayal of X. Um, Mouse, is, I think, is a fabulous book, but he also chooses pigs to portray the Polish um, and he picks, picks frogs to portray the French. Well, that's an old stereotype of both of those cultures. This book's not perfect. I, if I were teaching the book, I would point this out and say, this is a problem here. Like, book's not perfect. I think it's got 98% good stuff, 2% bad. Let's, let's honor that. And so I think if we can respect each other, and again, it almost always comes out when it gets to a board meeting or a trial. Um, can we get to it before then? Um, you know, like we do at my school here, we do an opening, um, I think in the first two weeks, like a parent's night and the parents come, we talk about, here's the curriculum for this class. Um, so if a, t if a parent had a question, that's a great time to talk about it. Let's not wait until March when all of a sudden we're starting to read this book. If I remember right, McMinn County made this decision the day before they were supposed to start teaching the book. 
I mean, you're on the board. I would think you know this is in the curriculum. It's been around for a while. It wasn't something new. So I again, if people are just in community with each other and they're having conversations, it's going to come up. And so then I can have that conversation with a parent and say, if she comes to me or he comes to me and says, I really don't want my child reading this book. Let's talk about why. Um, let's see what we can do here. And maybe your child just needs to skip two pages. Um, yeah. I taught some really, really controversial stuff when I was at Lee and students would tell me after the fact, they would say, you know, I just had to skip a chapter. Like I knew, I knew something rough was coming. And so I had to skip that. And I'm like, okay, perfectly fine with me. So there are ways to do this instead of just all or nothing, me yelling at you and you yelling at me. So the problem is when we get that huge divide and parents stay over there until they get angry or teachers stay over here and they don't communicate, then we don't have those conversations. And that's when we have real, real trouble on almost every issue. I am interrupting this episode for a quick announcement. One of the most important decisions we make as parents is where to send our kids to school. When we think about how many hours a day our kids are at school, there's no denying the fact that it has a profound influence on who they are. Get to know more about Worthington Christian School by downloading our free 24-page viewbook. Visit worthingtonchristian.com forward slash explore WC. Again, it's worthingtonchristian.com forward slash explore WC. Now back to our show. I want to talk about the age appropriate piece of this, you know, that obviously that's a pretty subjective phrase. Um, but I would guess that parents anywhere would say, okay, well, this book mouse, I'm sure that's fine for an older person or an adult to read. It's a great, it's a great thing for an adult to read, but how can we determine what age appropriate is and whose responsibility is it to determine that? No, that's a really, really tough question um, because I'm teaching 10th graders this year and I have 10th graders who behave like college students and I have 10th graders who behave like sixth graders. Um, what is age appropriate for them? And that's just behavior. That's not knowledge of the world. That's not anything else. Um, some kids come from very different backgrounds and they know way too much about the world before they leave elementary school. Some other kids are going to enter college not knowing much at all about the world. And that may be where they get all kinds of shock um, that they never expected. Um, I, I think it's a hard thing. Again, if I'm a teacher and I know my kids, I think I should be good at that. Um, like even today in a class, um, there's one class I have that's particularly struggling. So I spent just 10 minutes at the beginning talking about something I didn't talk about in the rest of my classes because I know they're struggling writers. They need something different than gifted writers over here. So in the same way, it's like, okay, if I can teach Toni Morrison to pick somebody who often hits that ALA band list, like I'm teaching her next year in AP Lit because those students are getting ready to go off to college. They can do this kind of work. They can be exposed to this kind of material. Again, I'll still set it up as best I can, but I'm not going to teach that to ninth graders. Um, in fact, just this year, our summer reading was a Toni Morrison book, and I'm brand new here this year, so I didn't have a say in the summer reading book. I would not choose that book for summer reading 
Um, one, it's a confusing book, and when they get lost, there's no help for them because it's summer reading. But two, it's got some material in it that we didn't have a chance to set up. Mm-hmm. And I think if we would have set it up, they would have understood what was going on and why it was going on. So I think, again, just as a teacher, it's context. Um, if I can set up the context, then it's going to help so much. But also as a parent, um, I'm thinking again about the McMinn County um, School Board meeting. The school board members hadn't read the book. Um, if, if I'm a parent um, and I want to know what my child is reading, I'm reading it. Um, and we have parents who do that, who talk to me about the summer reading because they said, I read that summer reading and I was lost. And I'm like, good for you. Like, I'm sorry you were lost. It was a hard book, but good for you. Like, that's exactly what I think parents should be doing. And clearly they can't do the entire curriculum. Um, You know, they're not going to be doing geometry and um, history and everything. But I think they could keep up at least fairly well. Um, I don't think middle and high school is that demanding. Um, So, yeah, just to pay attention to what their kids are doing. Kind of like we talked earlier about, there's all this stuff out there. Parents worry about where, where their kids go on the Internet. They put filters on the Internet. So talk to your teachers. What are you going to read this year? And even say, like, what do you think might be particularly touchy? Um, and they might say, oh, we're going to do mouse. You know, it's a graphic novel. You could read it in two hours tops. So give it a read and let's talk about it. Um, so I think just that parental involvement in their kids' lives is going to help tremendously here. Um, and that's where really good conversations can happen as well, because the parent may read it and say, oh, that, that is a little touchy, but let me talk to them about this. Mm-hmm. And it may open up those doors of conversation instead of, you know, the student having to, you know, read this and be just freaked out on their own. And then they're like, well, I can't go talk to my teacher because they're an old person and my parents an old person. So I'll go over here and talk to my friend. And then they get misinformation and bad information or they don't go to any of those people. And then they just sit with it and internalize it. That's not healthy. So yeah, it can open these doors. Um, Occasionally you'll read like movie sites or TV sites and they'll be like, watch this show with your child to talk about X. It's like, yeah, that's it. Like, you know, if your child's watching a show um, right now, there's a lot of talk about euphoria. Um, I know nothing of this show. I know my wife has seen it, but it's a really heavy teenage show. And I'm thinking, you've got a choice. You could just tell your child, don't watch that. Or you could go watch a couple of episodes and then say, it is really bad, but let's take a look at it. And quick disclaimer, I've not seen a single episode of Euphoria. I know nothing. That's not a recommendation at all. But it's just one I hear people talking about. Well, that is one thing I wanted to ask you. Parents are busy and some parents are blessed with voracious readers, right? I mean, kids that they could never keep up with their own reading. How do you encourage parents to monitor what their kids are reading and the information they're taking in or the, the books that they're, that they're going through in order to help them process some of these big things, but also, you know, not be bogged down by, well, I have to read every single thing that my kids read. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Some of these kids go through these young adult novels, like three in a week. Um, and there's no way, I mean, I can't keep up with this. Um, so, I'll make a real plug here since my wife is also a high school librarian. I mean, this is kind of what she does is she reads books um, that she can recommend to her students. Um, she has a little display at the front of her account. It's called Miss Brown Recommends or Miss Brown's Reading. And she has read books and she'll say, that was a really good book. There's no way I can put that in my library. Um, 
because it's just, it won't fit. Um, or especially she used to teach middle school English and she would say, great book, too many of this word, too, too graphic here. That's got to be a high school book, you know, just making those decisions. So if a parent, of course, can't read all this, talk to the school librarian. Um, this is usually what good librarians do. They keep up with things um, or even say, um, do you have two good books that I could read with my child um, that talk about this issue or that issue? Um, there are websites that recommend such things. Um, talk to teachers again. So, yeah, I think there's that's an unrealistic expectation to ask a, a parent to read, you know, 60 books in a year for one child. You know, there may be two others over here um, who are watching, you know, this this show or playing these video games. I mean, yeah. So I, I would say use trusted resources. So sure, there are websites and look at those. But yeah, if you've got people in your life, school librarians, English teachers, other other kids, parents who play video games or who read, um, talk to them to say, have you heard anything about this book? What about this? Would this book be good for me to read with my child? Like, um, in fact, I was a librarian for a couple of years and I had a student walk in and he asked if he could check out um, Tim O'Brien's collection of stories called The Things They Carried, which is a war book. And so not surprisingly, it's got some language, it's got some violence. And I said, sure, you, you can check that out. He said, well, what about page 54 or something like that? And I thought, he knows there's something in this book. So he was aware enough that he knew there was something about the book. So I think sometimes the kids even just know. So you could simply say, hopefully good relationship with the child, like, what is this book about? Is there anything in there, you know, that you want to talk about? So sometimes just even saying, like, what is that book about? They'll start telling you the story because they love the book. And then in the middle of it, they'll just say, yeah, and this character does this. And you're like, really? The character does that? And then they may say, yeah, but then they suffer these consequences because of it. And the author's really trying to show how bad that is. You're like, oh, well, that's a good thing. So just the existence of the bad thing doesn't mean the author's proposing that bad thing as a way of life. So sometimes just engaging the students themselves in conversation. Um, my students tell me about all kinds of music and shows and books. Um, and I learn all kinds of things, um, many of which I don't want to read just because of my lack of interest, but they're they're pa passionate about it. So I tap into that and let them tell me about their world a bit. Now, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how faith plays into this whole conversation, you know, as parents that are wanting to raise children with a deep sense of faith. Uh, how does that how does that inform this process? Yeah, um, for me. The curiosity I have about the world is driven by my faith because I want to know what the world is. And I want to know, especially about people whose lives are not like mine. Um, I think too often we use faith to say, I only want to read about people who not only just agree with me, but who are like me. Um, I, there was a, a critic years ago, a guy named Harold Bloom, and he was once asked why he read so much. And he just said, I could never meet that many people. And I thought, what a great idea. Um, I used to talk to my, my classes at Lee about this, that to me, reading Christianly means loving the characters as I love myself, um, loving the authors as I love myself. This, this is, of course, um, the golden rule. And so I try to read authors, one, 
with that generosity of spirit. Like I don't read an author thinking they're out to harm me or my child in some way, hypothetical child, I don't have a child, um, my students. Um, and I don't read characters to say like, oh, this person is an awful person in the same way that if I met somebody in the real world who was doing these things, I wouldn't shun them. I would try to get to know them and understand them and think, why do you do the thing you do? Which is at the core of the humanities is why are we the way we are as humans for good and ill? And if I can understand that, then when I encounter that person out in the world and my child or the hypothetical child encounters that person out in the world, hopefully they'll greet them in the spirit that Jesus would. Um, you know, we talk about Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and hanging out with all of these people. Would Jesus read a book then about a prostitute? I think that's a great question. Um, I, I always hate to say Jesus would do X because I find that that gets me into trouble, but I think it's a valid question. Um, now, would 10-year-old Jesus read that book? Perhaps not. That might be a different question. Um, but I think that that's my way of approaching it is, you know, I teach books that try to teach my students empathy and I want them to learn empathy for people who are very different than them and who have had very different circumstances. Um, I teach at a school with kids who have a lot of privilege. Um, so I want them to see people who don't have those privileges in the world. And uh, sometimes because of that, they make bad life choices. Um, sometimes they think they don't have any choices. So it helps me when I'm out in the world and I see somebody and somebody says, why would they do that? Well, there's lots of reasons they would do that. They're not good reasons, but I can understand them. And so for me, it all comes from that sense of faith um, because that's how I try to read as a Christian. In your op-ed, you suggest that the removal of books like Mouse is to the detriment of students. What do you mean by that? I think this gets back to our level of comfort and how we tend to, if we hit something that's uncomfortable, kind of sweep it under the rug. Um, kind of to my point of if if we say that that book shouldn't be taught, are they actually suggesting a replacement to that book? Are we going to read about the Holocaust, which I think is an event we absolutely should? Um, if we're not going to read a book by Toni Morrison about being enslaved, are we going to read another book that's going to do this? Um, whenever the people in the board meeting who were speaking kept saying, you know, th there are other books, we should read other books, like nobody suggested we should move Mouse from sixth grade to eighth grade or eighth grade to 10th grade. If, if you think it's really good and it's just not age appropriate, move it. I'm, I'm all for that. Not let's pull it out of the classroom the day before it's supposed to be taught. Um, because I think certainly my education was very, very um sanitized in the sense that I didn't read about people who weren't me. Um, and so I grew up, you know, in rural Tennessee, Northeast Tennessee, and everybody I read either looked like me or sounded like me or was like me. And then when I went to college, all of a sudden I met people from Africa. I even met people from, you know, Pennsylvania and had no earthly idea, you know, what life was like. And so I was well-educated, but I didn't know anything at all about other people. Um, I didn't know much at all about the world, um, even though I could tell you historical facts. Um, and so I think when we just boil these things down, especially to historical facts, 
they tend to lose their meaning. I mean, we talk about story as this very important thing, and this is how we learn empathy, and this is how we learn about other people. Um, I always would remind my students at Lee that when Jesus was asked a question, what he would do was often not give a direct answer. He would tell a story. Um, and he would sometimes tell stories that were uncomfortable. He would tell stories about violence, somebody getting beaten up on the side of the road. He would tell stories about prostitutes. I mean, he would tell these stories because stories affect us in a different way. So I can read the historical facts of the um, Holocaust, but kind of like those middle school kids who did the paperclip project, I don't know what it's like to imagine six million people being put to death all because they're different in various ways than the way Germans thought people should be. So if I can show kids a story that helps them understand that, then that's going to be real learning. And they may not remember the facts. You know, in fact, they're probably not going to remember the facts. But man, they might remember that story. Um, you know, when I taught college, one of the reasons I thought about moving back to high school all these college kids used to tell me about their high school English teachers and these books that they had read and this impact they had had on them. And I thought, I want to do that again. <laughs> That's fun. So it's that idea, you know, you leave them with the story, whether it's, you know, The Great Gatsby or a Toni Morrison novel um, or it's Mouse. Um, and they see this in a very different way. Uh, and they're going to take that with them the rest of their days, I hope. So that to me is the point of education. Dr. Brown, thanks again for joining us. Parents, thanks for listening in. A new episode of the Navigating Your Child's Education podcast is published on the first and third Wednesday of each month. Make sure to like and subscribe so that the latest episode automatically appears in your preferred podcast library.